Today, we celebrate the Feast of the Most Holy Trinity. That means that I am supposed to explain to you how there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each distinct but totally united as the one true God. Now, as I recall from seminary, within the Holy Trinity, there are five notions, four relations, three persons, two processions, and one substance. Now, let me explain each of those to you in detail. Not up for that? (laughs) Fortunately, next week is Father's Day, so I can just tell you a story about fathers. Many years ago, when I was an attorney in Norfolk, Virginia, I represented a son who was suing his own father. I didn't say it was a happy Father's Day story. The son, I don't remember his name, but let's call him John, was the executor of his mother's estate. John's father had walked out on his mother when he was very young. And his relationship with his father had always been very distant since the divorce, which I quickly learned as I got to know John. In fact, from what I gathered, he and his father hadn't talked much since John became an adult. And John was well into his 40s by the time I met him. The father was a wealthy man, and in the divorce settlement from many years ago, he had agreed, assuming his wife did not get remarried, which she didn't, to provide a medical insurance policy for her, as well as to cover any of her necessary medical expenses if they weren't covered by the insurance. Now, in the last few years of her life, John's mother was quite ill. And although John was taking care of her for much of that time, she also needed a home nurse, which the insurance didn't cover. But John's father kept refusing to pay for the nurse, despite his agreement in the divorce those many years ago. Now, if you didn't know, home nurses are very expensive if you end up paying out of pocket. By the time his mother had died, John had paid out of his mother's assets a huge amount, something like $200,000, to cover the home nursing care. So after his mother died, John, now the executor of his mother's estate, hired my firm to sue his father on the grounds that the home nurse was the father's responsibility under the divorce agreement. The father denied this, arguing that he had agreed to cover necessary medical expenses, not nursing expenses. After all, his lawyer argued to me, if the nursing care was so medically necessary, the medical insurance would have covered it. You can see why Shakespeare said, let's kill all the lawyers. So that was the issue for trial. Now, as a lawyer, I was not infallible, but I was pretty sure that we had a strong case and that the court would award us all or almost all of the money that we were seeking. There were a couple of times at the beginning of the mother's illness when arguably the nurse had been called to the home when perhaps it was not absolutely medically necessary. But I was confident that a judge would see that at least 90% of the nursing bills were fully justified as medically necessary. So I was really surprised when the father's attorney kept giving us these ridiculous lowball settlement offers, like 10 cents or 15 cents on the dollar. We would have been, a, would have been willing to budge a little bit off the $200,000 in order to get the case settled, but we didn't even want to bother negotiating when they were making such low offers. It seemed like the father just wanted to fight it out in court. So after many months of the usual pretrial wrangling and the depositions and the discovery and all of that, the case was set to go to trial the next day. 
and I was at the office late getting ready when I got a call from the father's attorney. He offered to pay the $200,000 straight up. The father didn't want to go to court after all. So I called up John and I said, John, good news, your father agreed to pay. We don't need to go to court tomorrow. There was a pause and I think he was crying. Did he say he was sorry? And I said, John, I didn't talk to your dad, I just talked to his attorney. But is he sorry for putting me through this, for putting mom through this? And I said, John, I don't know. But he said, I need to hear it. And unfortunately, I had to tell him, John, that's not the way it works in the legal system. Your dad doesn't have to say anything. He's agreed to pay the money. That's all a court could make him do anyway. And he said, it's not fair. This is the way he does everything. It was just a big game of chicken to him, to see if I would blink. Then he throws his money at it to make it go away. He always messes with people like that. As you can guess, there was a lot more at stake in this case than $200,000. Now maybe John was right, it wasn't fair. When I was in college and then later in graduate school, I studied political philosophy and then I studied law. One could say that the central question of political science, law, and much of philosophy is simply this. What is justice? How do we know right from wrong? How should we act towards others? But in all of my studies, I never ran into a political philosophy or a theory or an ideology that really talked about the concepts of love and forgiveness. Yet this is what our Christian faith is founded upon. It's what makes our relationship to God and to others possible. Love and forgiveness. It's what Christians used to call charity before that word took on a more particular meaning. Charity is the inner logic of the Christian life. Thomas Aquinas called charity the greatest of the virtues because it is the efficient cause of every other virtue. Charity renders the Christian life not a series of disconnected moral actions, but as an overriding choice to love God over the allures of the world. Charity is the reason why the saints could have joy in their suffering, in their selfless good works, even in their martyrdom, because they referred all things to the measure of God rather than the measure of themselves or the measure of the world. Charity is called a supernatural virtue because it's something that is infused in us directly by God. But where does it come from? Well, it comes from the very inner life of God, because in becoming Christians, we are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In baptism, we inherit something of the perfect charity that exists in the very inner life of God. Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfectly united in love and self-giving. St. Augustine described the Trinity as a lover, his beloved, and their loving relationship. The Father looks upon the Son in love and the Son looks back at the Father in love. And from that mutual love proceeds the person of the Holy Spirit. We can never fully understand how God can be a trinity of persons, distinct yet united. But we can live our lives as icons of the Most Holy Trinity because by our baptism, we have been incorporated into the Trinitarian mystery. Now as Christians, all of our life is Trinitarian. 
but it most fully expresses itself in the life of the family. Because the family is that earthly institution where individuals can live in a true relationship of love and self-giving in the closest approximation of the Most Holy Trinity. It's why the Church teaches that the family is the very foundation of society. The Catechism says the family is the original cell of social life. It is the natural society in which husband and wife are called to give themselves in love and in the gift of life. Authority, stability, and a life of relationships within the family constitute the foundation for freedom, security, and fraternity within society. Similarly, the compendium tells us the family is the divine institution that stands at the foundation of the life of the human person as the prototype of every social order. It's why every other human institution or government, even the church herself, must be measured by how it works to support the family. If you are blessed with a loving family, or if you've even just spent time with one, you know that experience of Trinitarian love. You can just feel that peace that radiates outward from the heart of those loving relationships, just like the Holy Spirit proceeds forth from the love of the Father and the Son. But sadly, if you've ever spent time around someone who didn't have that, like my former client John, you can immediately sense that lack of peace. I had a friend in seminary who had a bad father, not physically abusive or neglectful, but as he would tell you, his father was just a self-centered, self-absorbed, selfish kind of person. As he often said, growing up, I believe that my father loved me, but I knew he loved himself more. My friend didn't want to be like his father, but he struggled with his own patterns of self-centeredness created by the bad fatherly image that had been given to him, and this was an obstacle to his priestly discernment. And what's sad is that he himself understood perfectly well why this was the case. He would say, I never saw what it meant to be a good father, committed, self-giving, self-sacrificing, willing to forgive, loving no matter what. So how can I imagine that I'll be a good priestly father? Aquinas taught that although all the persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are co-equal and co-eternal, God the Father was the principium ratio of the Holy Trinity, meaning the principal reason or the foundation, because the Holy Spirit and the Son are defined in relation to the Father. I think this is true of families as well. Where fathers are strong, families are strong. Where a father loves, the family loves. Let me leave you with the instructions of our former Pope, now St. John Paul the Great, to fathers. He wrote, in revealing and reliving the very, on earth the very fatherhood of God, a man is called upon to ensure the harmonious and united development of all of the members of his family. He will perform this task by exercising a generous responsibility for the life conceived under the heart of the mother by a more solicitous commitment to education, a task he shares with his wife, by work which is never a cause for division within the family, but promotes its unity and stability, and by means of the witness he gives of an adult Christian life, which effectively introduces his children into the living experience of Christ and the Church. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.